This is the FutureX podcast. In each episode, we interview a platform designer, author, or publisher. They'll talk about how to build online communities that are diverse, welcoming, and safe. Now, here's your host, Lee Schneider. Welcome, everyone, to the FutureX podcast. I'm Lee Schneider. In today's episode, you'll meet Dr. Nicole Haggard, who is an award-winning instructor, speaker, and published researcher with 16 years of study about the intersection of race and gender in American culture. In 2018, Nicole co-founded the Center for Intersectional Media and Entertainment, that's CME, an organization dedicated to advancing representation. We're going to talk about her experience with her co-founders of creating and sustaining CME. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So first, let's start at the beginning. What is CIMI? What is CIMI? You know, that's a great question. CIMI is an organization that works in a couple different ways, but our major goal is to transform our collective relationship to the stories we are all watching, right? We're all consuming media. We're all consuming entertainment media. And we really want to advance a conversation of like, what does that look like on screen and how does that impact us as people? So in order to do that, we have to work with what we call our five A's, which are audience members, right? It's like all of us consuming activists who are people who care about representation and um, the issues about representation and are doing that work. We work with academics who care about research. We work with allies in the industry, so folks that are wanting to make a change. And then we also work with artists, um, so be like content creators. And so for us, it really is the combination of the five A's that come together in different ways that we're able to do the work that we do. And sometimes that looks like a research project. We just finished a huge research project with Amazon Films and the Sea Change Institute. Sometimes that looks like a workshop. So we do uh, Hollywood white supremacy and me. That was for allies who wanted to learn how to do better work. We do talks all over the place. So we're really involved in a really intersectional approach um, to just getting our message out there and getting content creators and audience members to think differently about what they're producing. Now, the obvious question is why? Why did you start doing it? And why do we need to do this? So my PhD is at a cool intersection of critical race theory, women's studies and film studies. So I had always been like deeply rooted in the data of like what's going on um, on screen, you know, like knowing that women are only um, 33% of the speaking characters, right? Like data like that would just shock me. But then also learning that women were so underrepresented behind the scenes. So then we also make up like 17% of the key roles in production too, behind the scenes. And so there's this really clear connection between the, the people who are working on these projects and then the content that we're getting. And so when I started working at Mount St. Mary's University, they do the report on the status of women and girls in California. And they asked me to put out the data for what's going on for women in the entertainment industry. And so I put out that data, just gave you some of the stats there, right? And I started going to all these events and people would just spout the data without any context, right? And it became super clear to me at all of these huge women's conferences, women's events, all of these things, women in entertainment, they weren't talking about how this impacted us as people, right? Like, what does it feel like then to be the only woman in the room? Because that's usually the experience. And the only woman of color, the only person of color, right? Like, how does that feel to walk into that room and try to make change 
And what is that making, like, what does that do to you as a person, right? And so I was like, I think there's a big call for us to gather. And I started having what I called the women in Hollywood circles. And so they were four women who were working in the industry and we would get together almost like an AA meeting, right? And like, just talk. And I would do um, some grounding exercises. And a lot of people were like, this is like church for my career, you know, and they feel so isolated and alone. And so it was great to come together and share the experience of, of what they were going through. Um, so I started doing those on my own. And then uh, I was nominated as one of 50 women changing the world in media and entertainment for the way that I bridged academia and activism in this space of women in entertainment in Hollywood. And through that, I met Joy Donnell and Monica Lay, my two co-founders of CME. Um, and they just thought that that personal level of what I was doing was really interesting. Um, and we loved the intersectional approach. Like I'm an academic. Monica is a studio executive. Joy is an author and a producer. We're all activists in our own right, in our own different ways. And so we were like, let's come together and bring all of these different perspectives together to create some change. So it really was grounded in that need for creating data with soul. Like what is the human element to these numbers, right? Like the data is speaking truth to the power, but then what do we do with that? And what do we do about that? And so coming from our three different perspectives is what really sort of like bolstered see me and, and got it going. Great. So a lot of questions here. Let me try to start at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. People behind the scenes and people what and what we see on camera behind yes. the scenes what we see. Maybe a lot of us aren't thinking about the relationship there, the direct relationship. Like yeah. if it's all a bunch of white guys in a room, you get a certain kind of entertainment. That's yeah. what shows up on Netflix. Is it true? And and how do, does the the constitution of the writer's room, of the producers, how does that change what we actually see on screen? So let me pull up the exact stat for you. The Center for Study of Women in TV and Film puts out their studies every year. Martha Lausen is an incredible researcher who does this. And they have reported, right, that there is a direct connection between the roles of women you see on screen and the people working on those films, right? So in films with at least one woman director and or writer, females will comprise 56% of the protagonists, right? But in films with exclusively male directors and or writers, females only account for 23% of protagonists. So really what that is showing us that, that including even just one more woman behind the scenes increases the visibility and quality of the female characters on screen. So over 30 years, really, like when we're looking at this data, not much change um, has happened. And really the numbers of women behind the scenes peaked in 2018 and then has started to go down again. And so it's really frustrating when we know that even just having one more person in those rooms, right, increases not only the likelihood of there being a lead female character, but also the quality of that character. Like, what are they going um, to be talking about? Will the film even pass the Bechtel test, right? Like, can you have two women talking to each other at the same time? There's all of these different, like, layers. Like, we could talk about age. We could talk about race. We could talk about if they have a job, if they're even seen doing that job. Um, it can go in so many different ways. But really, 
what it comes down to is a lack of female characters on screen, a lack of them actually having speaking roles. And then when they are on screen, they're extremely one-dimensional and their most valuable contribution is to the other male characters. What are they doing for them? How are they advancing their storylines? Um, and I think that's where the real problem is. It's in the imagination of the people who are creating this content. Um, and so it just, like you were saying, it's like common sense, right? Like if they're not there, then the imagination is limited. And we do see that as a direct connection. Movies, TV, they're delivery systems for ideas. Yeah. And sometimes the creators of those decide you need a Kevin Costner, a white dude in there, to be part of that delivery system. Otherwise, they assume it won't play. It's not going to work. But obviously, what you're saying is we need to question this. We need to question these systems of delivery of these ideas. So let's turn that around a little and ask, okay, see me. We described a little bit what it does. And these are important world-changing ideas that you're talking about. But how do you get them across? Uh, yes, the numbers, the numbers are great. But as you said, you know, people need stories, not just numbers. And people need examples about themselves, not just numbers. And people need to kind of talk this out on their own in groups sometimes. And I've seen some things on CME on LinkedIn and other kind of live stream sort of things where just people get to talk about movies, which people love to do, aside probably the number two thing, first talk about myself, then <laughs> talk about movies. You know, that's what most people like. But why did you choose that kind of conversational, let's talk, let's get out the popcorn. Why that? Why do that? So a lot of it also comes from my background, right? And one of my favorite thinkers is Bell Hooks. And she has this piece called Movie Making Magic. And she talks about there's nothing more powerful than cinema to really teach us about race and gender and sexuality. Like it is the ultimate teacher, right? And it's teaching you constantly in ways that we don't even acknowledge. So there's that, right? There's like, yes, media is one of our primary socializing institutions and we need to acknowledge that. And so it's, that's an easy source. And then two, gosh, like everything we learn about who we are, who other people are, how to argue, how to love, how to do anything, right? We're learning from the movies. And like you said, people love talking about it. So because we have this rich data at CME, right? We have the research from, from my dissertation that really looked at the production code era, which was the rules of what could and could not be in the movies. And we have all of this other data that we produce, right? That gives us this modern view. So what we discovered um, and what I discovered was that through these rules, they created cinematic segregation, right? And there were rules about who could be on screen together at the same time. So for example, there was one of the rules was the miscegenation clause, which forbid sex relationships between the white and black races. Um, and what would happen is you would submit your script to the production code administration and tell them like what story you wanted to tell, right? They would write you back and they'd be like, okay, you can do this. You can't do this. Take this out. Keep this in, right? Or they would straight up say, nope, sorry, this is too, goes too much against what our rules are, right? And they were really attempting to forestall state censorship at the time or federal censorship 
of movies, right? Because at the time, we didn't have um, freedom of censorship for cinema. It was declared a business, um, and so it wasn't an art form, and so they were liable to censorship. So they were really attempting to forestall that. So they were playing this game of, like, including content that they felt like people would be okay with seeing, and forbidding content that they feel like would be controversial. But when you say they, who are you talking about? You're talking about cisgendered white folks who are talking to other cisgendered white folks, right? So there was the rule about um, homosexuality. They called it sexual perversion, but that was forbidden, right? And so there's a whole work um, called The Celluloid Closet that really explains the history of that. So at CME, we kind of do what Celluloid Closet did for homosexuality for race and gender, right? The intersection of race and gender to really show how did the production code era, which was this um, 30-year period in early Hollywood, create this level of common sense of what people want to see on screen and what they don't. Um, and it defined what success looked like, right? And so, for example, there was a group of theater owners, um, I think they were from South Carolina, and they wrote to the production code and they said, look, we only want to see movies that have white people and what they called Negroes at the time in movies together if the Negroes are in servile positions or perso. Like all of this stuff you're doing with black and white people dancing on camera together, people having relationships, friendships, work relationships, we don't want that. And we're not going to show your movies. What I think is important to remember is that things would not be banned. Things would not be forbidden. Things would not be censored if they weren't being put in front of us in the first place or if people weren't trying to make this content in the first place. So it really is this period of silencing that happened. And so at CME, we like to acknowledge something that George Lipsitz says, which is the stories we tell are the stories that sell right? But if we don't acknowledge that we censored what we could tell in the first place, then we keep telling the same stories of what we decided could be told, right? So if the stories we sell are the stories we tell, then that means the stories we tell are the stories that sold. But we don't acknowledge that we censored what could be told in the first place. And when we share this history with folks, getting back to your question about how do we do this, right? So there is this element of like, I'm so excited to talk about what I'm watching. It's everybody's favorite thing to talk about. And then we share a little bit of this history. And for so many people, it's like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I've never seen myself on screen, and I thought that was because I'm not worthy. But it's really because there's this long history of Hollywood censoring what could be on screen. And what's fascinating is the folks working in Hollywood now don't even know about this history either, right? And they are just going off assumptions of what could sell. It's all about comps. If it sold before, it'll sell now. Give me a comparison, right? You want to make your movie? Tell me that it it's like Forrest Gump meets Harry meets Sally. <laughs> like, what is the comp that you're giving me? And so if there are no comps, there's this way that like it won't get made and it won't push through, even though it is the stories that people so desperately want and need. So I think that sharing the history, giving a little bit of historical data to, or a, a little bit of historical context to the data. And then also, like I started in the beginning, right? What is the human element to the data? It's that full circle that really helps people get it and transforms the way they watch. I had this experience in my classrooms where people are like, I can never watch movies the same way again. 
you've ruined me forever. This sucks. <laughs> and it's amazing. Right. And so we really wanted to have that impact on everybody so that they would consume differently. It's a lot about, or in part about breaking these feedback loops. Yeah. How do you make this a popular concept? How do we get audience members not only thinking about this, but also asking for change so they're breaking the feedback loop? How do you reach people? So how we do it is by taking what people are watching now, right? So we have those conversations with folks like, what are you binge watching? You know, and a Mm -hmm. lot of times that ends up being something on Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That they're binge watching. Um, And depending on what the content is, right, we'll ask them, oh, are there any female characters in that, right? Or starting from the question of what's your favorite movie, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself in that movie? It's really just connecting the dots for people of does what they're seeing on screen reflect the real world they live in or the real world that they want to see. And we have been so conditioned. That's, I mean, that's why movies are so great, right? Like they take you into this fantasy place and you, you're just like, whew, they wash over you and you're in the world of the movie. And sometimes your critical brain stops working. But once you just like point one thing out to them, depending on what it is they're watching, right? And, and they're like, oh, wow. And then they can never watch the same way again. Once you tell somebody, hey, did that thing you love pass the Bechtel test? Well, now they're always going to notice if something passes the Bechtel test, right? And think about the implications of that. So to us, it's like the power of the data whistle, right? It's like, oh, just poke a hole in something and then let's keep talking about it. So now you've noticed that there's no female characters. Well, now are you noticing like what those female characters you're seeing are doing? Right. And sometimes there's like additional layers of intersectionality to this. Like there's this big movement right now for white women to be like heroes, right? And to be these like badass women on screen who are like solving problems and doing all these things. And we don't want to be vulnerable and at home and in our feelings. We don't want to be saved, right? It's this feeling of like, we don't need a man to save us. And then you get black women coming along and they're like, yo, it would be so nice if someone could save me right? Like I am constantly out here. The characters that I am are like these really strong women doing things. And I just want to be like emotional and vulnerable and saved. And so it's also like, where are these layers of intersectionality that show up in the representation, that show up in the data, that can really allow people to talk about the patterns of representation that they're seeing on screen. And so we give you a little hint of what those patterns are, and then people apply that to their personal lives and really have a deeper conversation with us. And your audience, Mm -hmm. curating your audience. Obviously, when you say to someone, do you see yourself on screen or, you know, or does this pass the Bechtel test? You've chosen, or people have volunteered perhaps, to be that audience to talk to. And I'm asking this question because I'm thinking of people who might want to start their own organizations or who are building their own gatherings and communities, sometimes online. And curation, finding the people, is not only key, but can be really hard. It can be difficult because you have to reach outside your own associates. You have to reach outside your own bubble because you want diversity. That's, mm-hmm. It makes it better. So how are you doing that? What do you do about that? So for us, 
we have a really easy topic, right? I mean, it's people love watching mm. about the talking about the movies, right? And so that's a way that we are able to draw people in just simply based upon whatever piece of content that we're talking about. But I think that's relevant to any group that's attempting to form a community. First, it's like what what is the thing you're actually trying to impact? And then where is the popular culture connection to that is a great way in both social media and LinkedIn and, you know, all of these different platforms um, to get a broader audience paying attention. Um, and I think because I did film studies, I just got that so naturally, but other people are coming at it a different way and they end up at film studies, right? So other people are like, what I really care about is this, Maybe it's police brutality, right? And I'm trying to create a community around police brutality. Well, the way that we portray um, policing in cinema is a huge issue, right? Color of Change is doing studies on this. Norman Lear Center is doing studies on this. So there is always a way that like the way the thing you care about is portrayed or being talked about will show up in popular culture. And I think grabbing those popular culture moments that you care about is a great way to to bring people into your conversation. Um, and so, like, for example, we're working with a project right now that's focused on women in STEM and really advancing the movement for women in STEM. And so part of what we're doing is pulling all the examples of what's going on in popular film and television right now that's related to characters of women in STEM. Is this, like, what do you think about this character? What do you think about this mm -hmm. character, right? What do you think about this moment that's happening? So I think that's a, a super easy way, right, that you can curate content and draw people in for your audience. Yeah, that's great. Pop culture, powerful vehicle to get, at least get people's attention. Yeah. And, and get yeah. them interested. And that's what we find. Like it's, people love, like you said, people love talking about what they're watching, yeah. you know? And so where can you pull that in to your conversation and get people to see the thing you care about? What are your must haves for a community of people. Let's say we're building a movement. You're building a movement. So you probably face this all the time. Mm -hmm. Who are the people I want li listening to me and why? And do I need diverse people? And where do they come from? And where is it about the power center people? Or is it about the popular people? Mm -hmm. Who will give this voice? Who will carry this forward? I know it's a big question, but... I'm sure you've thought about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, for us, there's two things that I'll talk about. So one is like that idea of diversity in the first place. And then like, who do you need at the table? Um, so, and both of these are framework shifts, right? I think when you mm -hmm. are deciding what you're doing, like what is your entry point? What are the assumptions you're bringing about who is your audience? Who are your people in the first place? And I think this word like diversity is getting thrown around a lot and we need to really like tune into what do we really mean? So often mm -hmm. in our industry, and I'm sure this relates to other industries, um, diversity means including one person who isn't a white male at the table. And now yeah. that person is diverse, not us as a community are diverse, right? So that's the first we as a community have to be a diverse, a person is not diverse, a group of people is diverse, right? The second piece of it is like, what is diversity anyways? And 
in American culture, we have boiled that down to literally your phenotypes. What do you look like, right? If somebody looks different from me, then we've created diversity. But if you can easily poke a hole in that as well, and I'll give you an example. I had an an assignment in one of my classrooms. It was a journalism classroom. And so they had to kind of like when when you're in elementary school and you're picking teams, right, for your kickball or whatever, right? So they had to, we had team leaders and they had to pick teams and create the most diverse newsroom. Right. So how would you do that? So we had two team leaders and they were picking teams. And so one team was me, an older white lady, a first generation um, young girl from El Salvador, and then a girl who was uh, uh, she was Korean and Mexican uh, mixed. Right. And they were like, oh, my God, y'all, y'all are the most diverse group for sure. Right. Well, turns out we all grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And two of us went to the exact same high school. So when it comes to diversity, we weren't that diverse, right? We Mm -hmm. all thought the same. We talked to the same. We grew up with really, like, we had the same teachers teaching us. But if you're looking at us just about what you're looking at, we looked the most diverse. And so we challenge people to think of diversity on multiple levels, right? Not only is it the obvious ones we think about a lot, which would be like race and gender and sexuality, but what about age? What about religion? What about income status? What about education? What about who you grew up around, right? Like I grew up in really having a lot of interracial friendships, interracial relationships. And because of that, I was so aware of my whiteness and how my whiteness changed in different contexts, depending on who I was around and where I was going. I think that's like a gift that a lot of white folks don't even see their whiteness as a thing, right? But because I grew up that way, then I see my whiteness in that way. So uh, having me and another white person is actually interesting. That doesn't mean we're not diverse, right? So really, you know, questioning what does diversity look like based on different life experiences and how you formed as a person for whatever the issue is that you're trying to address, right? And really reframing your idea of what diversity is. Hmm. That's a really great point and one that I am thinking about and need to think more about. Thanks. And okay, so the other piece of it is like, who do you talk to? Is that what you're asking? Like, who do you need at the table? Who do you need at the table is a good way to put it. So I think our, the way that See Me formed is actually a great example of this, right? Because what we saw was industry folks, are talking to industry folks, right? They're Mm -hmm. like, what is the problem in the industry? How do we solve this industry? Then I was an academic and I'm like, have all of these friends who are like writing amazing work and, you know, like digging into aspects of representation that they really care about and mapping the historical trajectory of this representation, but they're not talking to industry people, right? Then you have like my social justice friends who are like, we need to change representation. This is why, right? Like, it's so interesting. People are from different industries talking about the same thing, but they're in their silos, right? So for me, you what we call it is the five A's, right? So it's like you need the academics, you need the activists, you need the artists, you need the people in the industry who want to be allies, and you also need the audience members, the people who are consuming the information. So for you, who are your five A's? Who are your three A's, right? Like who are the other 
people who are situated in a similar place as you who are doing the work from a different perspective because they are going to bring their solutions to the table. I find so often that I'm over here like, I don't care if there's 15 more Latinas on screen. If they're still all drug dealers and maids, that is not advancing representation, right? And then Monica will be like, okay, so I'm in a green light room making these decisions and we are having conversations about Latinas and that we need more Latinas, but we don't know how to do, right? Like, and I'm in the room where they're making the decision to not make that. And this is what this looks like in reality, Nicole. You don't understand what this looks like in reality, right? And then Joy's like, I'm over here writing this story, right? About this Latina character. And this is what, so like, and then we have like our friends in like Color of Change, for example, who's like trying to create these movements of change. Like if we aren't all talking to each other, our solution is going to fall flat. Um, and so I think that's really the the unique thing about Simi is that we bring these voices together very intentionally. If it is not intersectional, it is not something that's going to be a progressive solution that's actually going to create long-term change. And let's say someone wants something that is a change-making organization. What are your suggestions for keep sustaining something like that, keeping it diverse, what and what are you doing to sustain Simi and keep it fresh for yourself so you all want to keep doing it? We have made a big change recently towards this now watching program. We were focused a lot on working with people in the industry, right? It was like if we impact the people in the industry, then we will impact change. Um, and honestly, we were starting to get a little like, uh, uh, right. It's like, feels like such an uphill battle. And Mm. a lot of people are doing that work now. When we started, there weren't that many people doing that work. And now that work, and we've seen change in the industry, not as much as we want, but of course, you know, here we go. Change Mm. is happening. So we had to reconvene with each other and be like, what is the thing we actually care about? And for us, it came to, We care about stories. We care about the images on screen because we know those impact society. That's the thing we care about. So who do we really want to be talking to? The bigger picture there is the audience members, right? And so now we're having conversation, like we're doing a big presentation at a pharmaceutical company, right? It's like, here's people who are doing, who they've already done their DEI 101, but we know a great way to like learn about DEI stuff is through what you're watching, right? So bring us in and let's have this fun conversation. So I think the sustainability piece is check in with the different aspects of what you care about and where they come from and what they're grounded in. And as you're combining those like dig into one, right? And be like, oh, what could I be doing that's cool in that space? And I think that's why having multiple people from different industries addressing the same issue at the table, whether it's your founder of your business community, or if it is your community of people that you've brought together that you're serving, talking to them, right? And asking those questions, like what are the solutions? A lot of times that is the thing that will sustain you is hearing somebody else's perspective on the thing you care about and figuring out a way together to move forward with a solution with that. So, you know, as we know, like progress is not linear. It's always an up and down thing and it changes and you have to change with the times and, and, and reassess, right? Like what you're doing and to keep yourself going. So for us, that's been really helpful that it's not just this one solution, but we play in a lot of different lanes um, and work with a lot of different groups. We're all addressing the same thing that we care about. 
I think um, people end up using the term burnout to sort of cover a lot of things. Yeah. And, but one thing that really can happen is your mission, it doesn't get stale because you still care about what you care about, but it's how do we keep doing this? And yeah. what, you're, what I'm hearing from you is that revisit your original passions and look for different ways, different audiences, different ways to get at them. Yeah. I think a lot of time, too, that feeling of burnout comes from a backlash, especially those of us who are doing like social justice work about, and I think about like the women's movement right now. Like if you're doing anything related to the women's movement, it could feel crushing the stuff that's happening. But if you actually look at the history of social justice, a backlash does not happen unless change has happened, right? There will not be a backlash unless you're making progress. So it's this two steps forward, one step back thing. Well, they've, if you study like the way that the backlash happens, they're onto you. They know the thing to make you feel burnt out, right? So to your point, go back and be like, cool, now I know I'm making change. That's like exciting. Now, how do I do it in a new and different way, right? to keep it going. And to us, that's the thing that brings us hope is knowing that really a backlash is like, oh, you're onto something, right? Things are happening. And that's why there's a backlash. And it's not this moment of crushing despair, right? And that's the reframe that we do to help us keep going. Is there anything that I forgot to cover or that we didn't get into? When it comes to online communities in particular, I think it's super important to work with young students. There are so many students who are experts, especially in online communities, because they like do this like a second language, right? They've grown up with this stuff. They understand how to create content in really interesting ways. And they will bring you a diversity of perspective, just basis of their age and the popular culture that they're consuming, right? And so having these conversations with them and bringing them onto your teams, um, whether it's an internship, if you can pay them, please pay them for their internships. But a lot of students can get course credit for their internships as well. Um, bring them onto your team, have conversations with them, kids who are like passionate about the thing that you're passionate about and have them help you create content that's going to resonate with folks um, and teach you some of the, the skills, right. Of, of how social media actually works. Um, we've been doing social media for so long and now I feel like I'm like, I don't even know how it works anymore. It's changed so much, right? And so we're constantly bringing young, younger folks to the table, talking to them to have them help teach us, you know, how to, how to really create these communities in great ways. So they're an invaluable asset to us. Well, Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. This was great. Thank you, Lee. This is fun to talk about stuff we care about. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Future X podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or anywhere fine podcasts appear in your feed. Post a comment on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show. For more info about FutureX, visit futurex.studio.